we're in the final part of our side-by-side -side series. This, we've been looking the last nine weeks, growing together as disciples, family members, and missionaries. And I want to end this series today, kind of wrapping it all up, by looking at some realities of the Christian life. Now, a few weeks ago in part seven, I, I looked at what success in the Christian life is like. And we talked about establishing a pattern a rhythm of life. We're not measuring success by what the world thinks is success, but, but the model that we see in Jesus, a life that is uh, kind of uh, that mix of engaging and withdrawing, engaging with what we're doing and then withdrawing, spending time with God. And we look from Luke chapter 5, verse 15 through uh, verse 16. But, even, uh, but now even more, the report about him went abroad, about Jesus, and great crowds gathered to hear him and be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. We see in the model of Jesus, in the life of Jesus, this pattern of engaging and withdrawing. He's engaged, fully engaged. He's under pressure. He's doing the stuff that he's called to do, and yet he still ensures that he has time to withdraw. That's the rhythm of life, engage and withdraw. And that's what I want to pick up today, engaging and withdrawing. Both are needed. Both are needed. One is not spiritually superior to the other. Like if you want to engage, you need to withdraw. And if you withdraw, you need to be a person who actually also engages as well. And so I just want to look and unpack some, some of the realities of the Christian life of what a rhythm of engaging and withdrawing looks like. And by engaging, I'm meaning all the things that we do in life. Whatever it is that you will be doing this time tomorrow, that's your engaging. Whether you're paid or unpaid, whether you're retired or, or stay-at-home mom, or whether you're in education or, or work, whatever it might be, whether it's caring for people, parenting, grandparenting, life, whatever it is that you do, that's the engage moment. Colossians 3, verse 23, we based a whole series around this a few years ago, whatever you do, Work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. And so reality number one of the Christian life is that whatever we do, we work hard. Whatever we do, we work hard. That, whatever the engaging part of our lives are, look like, Whatever we do, we are doing it not for man. We are doing it for an audience of one. We're doing it for the glory of God. We're serving Jesus in it, even if no one else ever sees, especially if no one else ever sees, we are serving Jesus. And so, therefore, we are not lazy. We are not idle. We work hard. And Scripture is full of commands to work hard. Fourteen times in the book of Proverbs, we're given warnings about not being sluggards. Don't be a sluggard. Don't be lazy. Work hard. Paul, in 2 Thessalonians 3, he criticizes the lazy. He criticizes the idle. And he says, stay away from idle people. Stay away from people who are lazy. Paul also commends hard work. 2 Timothy 6, he talks about hardworking farmers. He commends them. In Acts 20, verse 35, he says, in all things I have shown you by working hard. Romans 16. Right at the end of the book of Romans, this incredible letter, there's this kind of just list of people's names that he thanks. And he commends those in this by name, those who have worked hard. Verse 6, he says, greet Mary who has worked hard for you. Verse 12, he says, greet the beloved Persis who has worked hard in the Lord. Whatever we do, whatever it looks like, we give ourselves to it. 
and we work hard. Now, working hard will look different depending on the nature of what it is you engage in. But the point is, you're not lazy, you're not idle. We do it for an audience of one. We do it for the glory of God. So as we engage, we work hard. But we've also got to recognize that the Christian life is not just about working hard. Sometimes it's hard work. Christian life is sometimes really, really, really hard work. Reality number two, the Christian life is hard sometimes. Come to Jesus and all your problems go away. It's simply not true. Come to Jesus and your one big sin problem, that goes away. But the rest of them are probably just about to start for you. So it's not going to come to Jesus and everything is going to be lovely and everything's going to be nice. And part of the danger sometimes is that we kind of nod our heads and we agree and we say yes. And then we act surprised when life gets hard. Like, what's this about? I never signed up to this. Why is this going on? God, what are you doing? But Listen, look at Romans 16 in that list. Verse 3, he says, Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, verse 4, who risked their necks for my life. It's an element of being a Christian that sometimes might involve risking your neck. Verse 7, greet Andronicus and Junior, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. <laughs> These guys were following the Apostle Paul. And they found themselves, some of them in prison, some of them risking their necks. Paul acknowledges that not just those who have worked hard, but also that there are for those for whom there has been much hardship. They've had to take risks. They've had to spend time in prison. And the truth of the matter is sometimes... It is dangerous to be a Christian. In certain parts of the world, right now, this is very much a reality. There are brothers and sisters in Christ for, who are in prison for their faith, who face genuine persecution, not just a bit of criticism on Facebook, but genuine persecution for their faith. And here's the thing. It is not currently, like in this sense, dangerous for us in the UK to be a Christian, right? And yet, there is still hardship involved in being a Christian. None of us are likely at this moment in time, it might happen in the future, who knows, but none of us are likely at this moment in time to, in the UK to go to prison for our faith. And yet, the Bible doesn't wash over the realities of being a Christian. It's not all sunshine and smiles. It's not always easy. It's not always everything going swimmingly well. Within the normal Christian life, I'm not talking about kind of extreme things within the normal christian life as we see scripture as we read through scripture we see a number of things first of all there's the there is the devil and his relentless harassment we don't talk much about that but the reality is ephesians 6:12 for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers against the authorities against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places so we've got all of that stuff going on in the background and then there is what Jesus called, Mark 4.19, the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things that enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. So we've got the harassment of the devil, all that kind of stuff. And then we've got this desires of the world that comes in. And if we're not careful, it kind of can choke us. And then there is Paul's warning, 1 Corinthians 7.28, that those who marry, you're going to have worldly troubles. <laughs> That's good news, isn't it? Some of you, I know, no one told me before, read the word, that's why it's important. <laughs> you're going to have it. It doesn't say, if your marriage is not perfect, then you might have it. He goes, no, if you're married, you're going to have it. Then there's conflict in the church. Philippians 4, 2, I've got the scripture up there. He's, I am in you, please sort this out. 
Agree in the Lord. You stick in church, there's going to be conflict. Somebody will upset you, will say something stupid, will hurt you. They might even not have meant to. They might not have meant to. You stick around long enough, something's going to go a little bit pear-shaped. And then there's the steady stream of criticism for what you say or you don't say or you do or you don't do. <laughs> 1 Corinthians 4.12, and we labor, Paul says, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. So at some point, you're gonna, those things are going to happen to you. This is just the normal Christian life, right? This stuff going on is happening in normal, everyday Christian life. And then there's what Paul calls in Galatians 4.19, the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. It's like, it's part of the being shaped to be like Jesus is painful. It's like the anguish of childbirth. If you've ever given birth or witnessed it, you will know that there is some anguish involved. There is a little bit of pain involved. There is a little bit of, yeah, this isn't very comfortable. And that's just watching it involved. <laughs> Something good comes at the end until the sleepless nights. But we'll get to that in a moment. There we go. 2 Corinthians 6, 5. Sleepless nights. And that's not just about babies making noise. It's just about the anxiety that is going on. Paul says, uh, Romans 9, 2. He has great sorrow and unceasing anguish for those who are going to be saved. He talks about the daily pressure on me, 2 Corinthians 6, 5, for my anxiety for the church. It's just, there's just pressure. Life just has pressure. Life just has moments of anxiety. Life, and if you're a Christian here, you're not immune to it. This is the normal Christian life. And if you're looking in and you're thinking, I don't want to be a Christian, <laughs> this sounds shocking. You know, no, it's worth it because at the end of the day, we get Jesus. And the one big problem that we have, the separation from God for all eternity is dealt with. But it doesn't mean everything's going to be swimmingly nice all the time. And then there's that moment, 2 Corinthians 1, 9, the, <laughs> that, that moment where whether it's a, like perhaps a doctor's diagnosis you're waiting for or the boss's verdict you're waiting for or something else, it can feel like the sentence of death. Just feel like, whoa. Guys, these are just some of the normal pressures of the Christian life. Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation. In this world, you will have trouble. Expect it. Don't be surprised by it. But he goes on to say, take heart, for I have overcome the world. You're going to face all of this stuff, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. And here's the thing. Before we freak out, run away, or feel massively overburdened, I came to church to feel good, and you just put all this on me. We just need to recognize the reality. Number three is that Jesus is with us, and he is for us, and he alone sustains us. You cannot face any of those things without running to Jesus. You can try, but you're going to collapse at some point. Some of you right now are striving to deal with some of this stuff in your own strength. It ain't ever going to work. It's never going to work. Come to Jesus, all your problems go away is not true, but come to Jesus and he will sustain you through them and walk with you through them. That's the key. Jesus is with us. He's for us. And he will sustain us. Jude verse 24 says, Now to him who is able to keep you, to him who is able to keep you, not to you who's able to keep you, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. He will keep you. He will keep you. 
He will keep you. Some of you need to hear that right now. You're that marathon runner we heard earlier going, I've just stopped at mile 13. I can't do it anymore. He will keep you. He will sustain you. And he will present you blameless before the end. Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Corinthians 2.9.8, he will make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. And he will, 2 Corinthians uh, 1 Corinthians 1.8, he will sustain you to the end because he who calls you is faithful and he will surely do it. He will sustain you. He will keep you. And you know what? Most Probably one of the most misquoted verses in all of scripture, I can do all things through him who strengthens me, Philippians 4.13, does not mean you can do all things. I can't fly. But I've got enough faith I can know it, what it means is he will keep me and sustain me and enable me to overcome no matter what trial, no matter what hardship, no matter what pressure, no matter what anxiety, no matter what situation, challenge, difficulty or hardship I face in my life. As I turn to him and give him all glory and all dominion, all power and all praise and submit and surrender to him like properly, he will keep me and I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul writing to the church in Thessalonica, in 1 Thessalonica, uh, Thessalonians 1, 2 and 3 says, We give thanks to God always for you all, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, your labor of love, and the steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. That's, a, that's little kind of uh, faith, love, and hope. That's a, a little Pauline triad of stuff that he often talks about. And faith, love, and hope leads to work, labor, and steadfastness. You see, these are the outworking, the practic this is the practical outworking of our conversion. We work hard for the glory of God as a consequence of our faith in Christ. We have faith in Christ, and so now whatever we do engage, we work it out to the glory of God. And our labor, that working hard, it flows from the love of Christ. I have been loved by God, which frees me now to devote all of my energy into whatever my engaging looks like and labor. It becomes a labor of love for me. Sometimes I don't enjoy labors of love, but it becomes that sense of, no, I'm going to give myself to it because of the love of Christ. And our endurance, our steadfastness comes not from our own strength, but comes from hope in Christ. Faith, love, and hope leads to work, labor, steadfastness, endurance. He's faithful. He will see us through. And so, therefore, this is where we land. Our responsibility, because we carry a responsibility. If you're a Christian here today, you carry a responsibility in your life. One day you will stand before God. Now, the, the judgment seat moment, that kind of your sin that ever condemns you, that is dealt with by Jesus once and for all at the cross. You get, the verdict is already in. You were guilty, but the penalty has been paid by Jesus. And so that moment, when you stand before him in the judgment seat, you're going to get a big not guilty welcome. Come on in. But we're also going to be held account for what we did with the stuff that God gave us, the talents that we had. Literally, that's what the parable of the talents is about. And what did you do with, with the gifts I gave you? What did you do with the time I gave you? What did you do with the money I gave you? What did you do with it? I don't fully understand the, the exact kind of implications and outworkings of that. But I know that I therefore carry a responsibility. Not in a heavy way, but I'm, actually I want to I do the best with the stuff that God has given me. 
And so one of the chief responsibilities, and this is what I was pushing into the other week, is that we need to cultivate a relationship with God that enables us to stand firm and live out a life for God. So you can't work and labor and give yourself in the engaging if you haven't got the, the necessary depth of a life with God in able to sustain that. There needs to be with the withdrawal as well. And engage and withdraw is basically the pattern of a healthy life. And Jesus himself provides us with the perfect model. As we look at his life, we see this perfectly balanced, emotionally healthy, spiritually mature life. He was actively engaged. He was devoted. He gave himself. He worked hard to the glory of God. He had his priorities right as well because he also frequently withdrew. Think about Jesus for a moment. Jesus the man. At times he was under intense pressure. And he experienced the full range of human emotions. Jesus wept. He cried. He got angry. He got hungry. He laughed. He, he expressed pain. And he did all of those things without sinning. He displayed the full range of human emotions and was perfect without. Now, we're not Jesus, of course, but his pattern of life is one that we can learn from. And a healthy life, and this is what I just want to focus on the last few minutes, begins and starts with a recognition that we are not God. Like, I know that's obvious, or it should be. <laughs> but so often we kind of act as if we are. We are not God. And there are some things that he does not need to do that we do need to do. And the first is sleep. Like, we spend 30% of our time, our entire lives doing this. I'm not sure I've ever heard a sermon on it ever. And yet 30% of our lives, we hear loads of sermons on things that we probably do 0.0001% of our entire lives. Yet 30% of we never talk about it. We need sleep. That's reality number four. God doesn't. Psalm 121 tells us he neither slumbers nor sleeps. He's ever awake. He doesn't doze off. He doesn't get tired in mid-afternoon. He doesn't sort of oh, take his eye off the ball at any point. No, no, no. He doesn't need to be refreshed. He doesn't need to be recharged by sleep. But we do. Even Jesus, the incarnate, the word incarnate, the God made flesh, he needed to sleep. He fell asleep in a boat in the middle of a storm. <laughs> he needed sleep. To be human means to need sleep. And sleep is, is kind of the daily way we refresh to get the energy we need for all the engaged parts of our lives. And God designs us this way, and we kind of neglect it at our peril. Some of you are thinking, why is this so difficult? You shut your eyes, you lie down, you go to sleep, and everything's great in the morning. But the truth is, for lots of us, it's not. We're not getting enough of it. There is numerous consequences, negative ones, all of them, to not sleeping enough. There's the physical consequences, like your just body just begins to not function properly as it should do. There's the emotional consequences. There's all sorts of things that go wrong when we don't sleep. But I just want to make this statement. Sleep is also incredibly theological. It's incredibly theological. Psalm 127, the psalmist rebukes us when we behave as if we don't need sleep. It says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. 
Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go, to, go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives his beloved sleep. Now, in the context of Psalm 127 is that God is building the house. He's building the, the people of God. And the rebuke is for those who won't sleep because of anxious toil. They're burning the candle at both ends because we're not going to trust God for the work of building the people. Now think about what you preach by your approach to sleep. I appreciate some of you right now feel like you've stepped into a parallel universe. I dozed off at Jesus' will, do something, and now I'm talking about sleeping. <laughs> they are really connected. Think about what you preach by your approach to sleep. Sleeping declares, I trust God. He's actually sovereign and he never stops, so actually I can. I don't need to run around keeping everything in control because I can't anyway. And by actively sleeping and closing my eyes, what are you doing? Absolutely nothing. You're just lying there. You're not keeping anything going. You're not keeping anybody awake. You're not anything. You know that whole new parent thing and you just constantly... You, whether you sleep or stay up, that, that does not affect that baby in the slightest at all. It's just you who gets knackered. <laughs> They're going to wake up when they wake up anyway. Sleep. But we, we can approach life like that anyway. Sleeping declares, I trust God. Sleeping declares, I, I respect God and I respect his boundaries for me. He, know, he made me, he knows me, but I have limits and I have needs. I am a human being before I'm a human doing. I think we, we, we need to get that. I'm a human being before I'm a human doing. And part of my being is to accept God's gift of sufficient daily sleep to refresh me and energize me. Sleeping also declares that my kind of soul and body are linked. I cannot neglect my body and expect my soul to not be affected. If I don't look after myself physically through the act of sleep, I can't say, well, it's okay, it's just my, I'm okay. No, because this affects this. We are one person. Now, some of us struggle with sleeping. I'll be honest with you, I do. Massively. I've never been a very good sleeper. I find it hugely difficult, um, and over the last few months, I've found it even harder, which is why I've wrestled with this, should I even preach this, because I feel like, the, like, to be honest, this might just be for me. I've been on a massive journey with this. Still struggle with it, but putting, I'm learning to put my trust increasingly in God. I'm learning the lessons. I had countless sleepless nights, and to be honest with you, they're often to do with stress and anxiety. I hadn't realized that until even the last few months, Oh, maybe that's what it's all about. Oh, okay. And so I'm learning this thing. Why am I anxious? Why am I stressed? I'm anxious and stressed about stuff I have no control over or very little control over or can't really do much about. And so actually, there's a theological statement of trust there. Am I going to trust myself and, and sort this all out and so therefore get more stressed and more anxious and stay up later and work, get up earlier and work harder? Or am I going to go, do you know what, God? It's in your hands. And I'm going to close my eyes and go to sleep. Or at least try. Please help me more. I'm learning to take it to the Lord more and more. I'm learning to battle the theological implications of acting like I don't need sleep. I used to, if I'm honest, think of, Hannah loves sleep. She's like, I can't wait to get to bed. I'm like, it's just such a waste of eight hours. Like, think how many things we could do. That, was, that used to be my default setting. I'm learning more and more. No, 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 no. This is a thoroughly good thing for me. I'm learning some practical things. Stop looking at screens. <laughs> I don't, I don't do it anymore in the evening. That's it, gone, TV goes off, that kind of stuff. I've watched Netflix since November properly. I mean, there's part of me that feels like I'm like 
struggling with that. And there's another part of me that this is doing me good. Ending my day with the Lord properly. Actually, God, what you speak about to me this morning, what the, reflect that time, downtime. What can I thank you for? What can I, Lord, this is my anxiety today. This is what I'm struggling with. This is what I'm feeling stressed about. I'm leaving it with you so that you'll give me grace for tomorrow, tomorrow. So I'll worry about that tomorrow, right now, here. Writing it down, praying about it at the end of the day. Whatever it takes. Different things. We need sleep. We need to sleep more. Some of you, the best thing you can do this week is, is just go to bed a bit earlier and sleep. Or have a nap this afternoon. Why not? Reality number five. We need rest and renewal. See, this kind of ties into the sleep stuff, but it's a similar thing. Make a statement with how we live our lives, right? We make a theological statement with how we approach rest and renewal. God is always working. He sustains. He upholds. He, he kind of rules the universe, and he doesn't stop, but we must. See, if, if we don't learn to stop, if we don't learn to rest, if we, if we neglect this, we're kind of making a really big claim that we're like God, and we're really, really not. See, God thinks that rest is such a big deal that he, he placed it right up there in the Ten Commandments. Taking a Sabbath, taking a, a day of rest is up there with don't murder and don't lie. Now, we generally don't ignore the don't murder. We, we kind of think, yeah, no, that's a pretty good rule, but we have a little bit more of a, an issue. We don't feel like we need to follow the Sabbath thing as much. Now, of course, we are under a new covenant. The law of Sabbath is not binding upon us in that sense, but it there is more at stake here. There is wisdom in the principle of rest. So why do we ignore it? I think it's in part because the consequences are not so obvious. You kill someone, there's a consequence, right? It's right there in front of you. You see it. You've got to do something with that body. There is like massive problems there. You lie. You might be able to hold it for a little while, but the consequences are there. But you don't rest. The consequences don't seem so obvious, at least initially. We can get away with it without resting potentially for an awful long time. I'll be honest with you again, I've in the past have been guilty of this. I've been on a journey these last probably nine, 12 months of learning this stuff afresh. Not sort of thinking like I'm better than anybody else, just going, I'm just a bit different. I don't, I don't really know how to switch off. I don't really need to rest. I can just do, 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 do. I've learned in the last nine to 12 months, well, now it, that is, it can, you can sustain it for a while, but you can't sustain it for very long. And it's not particularly wise either. And another reason we tend to ignore it is that there, we just have this, this relentless busyness of modern life. We've lost the rhythm of work and rest. See, all of life requires a rhythm of rest. And our, our culture kind of invariably supposes that action and accomplishment are better than rest. That doing something, doing anything, doing stuff is far, has far more value than, than not doing stuff. Resting, well, what? And here's the thing, because of our desire to succeed, to meet these ever-growing expectations, to be successful, everything we looked at a few weeks ago, we don't rest. And when we don't rest, we lose our way. There's a universal refrain that I'm guilty of saying, and probably most of us in this room at some point, even if we don't explicitly say the words, I'm so busy. And we kind of wear it like a badge of honor. I know you're really busy. I know I'm really busy, yeah. Like as if somehow really busy people are better than non-really busy people. Like if you're busy, you must be important. It's damaging us. It's doing violence to our soul. See, behind the Sabbath commandment, there lies a creation pattern. 
God creates and then he rests. Jesus engages and then he withdraws. And so must we. Now, what exactly your rest looks like, it entirely depends on the kind of person that you are, which is why I say we need rest and renewal. A couple of weeks ago when I was preaching, I talked about the fact that we are creatures of dust, which is true. But we're creatures of dust in whom the spirit of Jesus Christ lives. And so the outward part of me is disintegrating. It is kind of fading away. But there is an inward renewal, 2 Corinthians 4, 16. There is an inward renewal that is taking place day by day. And this, this is really important. This inward renewal is not something separate from what is happening in my body and mind. Yes, there are different parts of me that kind of make me one. Like I have mind, body, emotions, all of that kind of stuff. But I am one whole being. I'm not separated out. My physical nature, my mental, my emotional, my intellectual, all those parts of my life, they're not separate from the spiritual part of me. And so often we separate them out. This is my spiritual life and this is everything else. No, no, no. Those things are not separate from my spiritual life. So spiritual renewal is not something that happens separate from the rest of my life. It's not some hidden thing that takes place. Spiritual renewal brings things like joy and peace to me and even physical refreshment sometimes. So to be renewed, there's a few things that need to go on. To be renewed spiritually before God, there's a number of things. I need to hear the gospel truth afresh. I need to be reminded of who I am in Christ. I need to remind myself of the promises of God that are hidden within his word. And then I need to drive them deep down into my soul. And yet at the same time as those spiritual things, times of quiet bring renewal. Enjoyment of beauty brings renewal. The excitement of sport, for me, brings renewal. There is nothing more exciting for me than spending a whole day watching test match cricket it br- or listening to another. It brings renewal. Some of you think, oh my gosh. Well, whatever it is for you, we're different people. The thrill of something creatively stunning brings renewal. Beautiful music, listening to it, brings renewal. Reading good books brings renewal. Enjoying stimulating conversation brings renewal. Staying away from people brings renewal. Fine food and drink, whatever, it brings renewal. Just laughing with friends brings renewal. Sex brings renewal. Whatever it might be for you, it brings renewal. That feeling of refreshment after exercise. The enjoyment of watching other people look like they're dead after exercise. Whatever it might be. We are not separated out beings. We are whole beings. And so part of the rhythm of our lives, of the engaging and the withdrawing, is not just I must read the Bible for half an hour every single day. That's good for you and part of it, but it's also doing things that do you good and getting them into your life. (laughs) See, all of these things help bring in part renewing and refreshing to me. And do you know what? God's involved in all of it. Every single part of our lives is involved in it. You and I are different in our personalities. We will all like and enjoy and be refreshed by things that are different. But think of it this way. Find the stuff that refreshes you and do it to the glory of God. And enjoy it to the glory of God. And as long as it ain't sinful, enjoy it as a gift from God. And if you're not sure whether it's sinful or not, read this. And if you're not sure, it probably is. Reality number six, we've completely run out of time for this, but this, we need friends. We need friends. We cannot do this alone. Started this series nine weeks ago by saying we're all needy. None of us are perfect, but we're also all needed. Every single one of us has a part to play. We need to help one another. 
We are not God. We cannot do everything. Some of us need to learn that lesson. All of us have a part to play, though, in helping other people, walking with other people. And let me just point this out. Your job is not to fix other people. Only Jesus can fix anyone else. Our job is to walk with people, prioritize engaging and withdrawing ourselves, prioritizing the renew ourselves, helping point people to Jesus all the time. And he ultimately is the one who changes and transforms lives. I just want to end with this quote because I think it's cool by a guy called William Still from a number of years ago. He says, some meddling, he's talking about ministers and people in the church, want to sort everybody out. God is not so optimistic. <laughs> there are some who will die, mixed up personalities, and they may be true believers. Don't try and do the impossible. Know your limitations and know what God is seeking to do in the world and what part he wants you to play. Most people crack up because they try and do whatever God never intended them to do. They destroy themselves by simple, sinful ambition just as much as the addict ambition drives them on. We are not called to do everything. We cannot do everything. Each of us have a lane to run in. Each of us have a responsibility with the things that he has given us. One day we'll stand before him held account for that. Each of us has a part to play and we do it side by side, recognizing we're all needy and we're all needed and we all have a part to play. Can we stand to our feet for a moment? We need to seek the Lord for this. We need to seek, seek the Lord for this. Some of us need to make some changes. Some of us need to just recommit ourselves. Some of us need to recognize that we have an awful lot of experience and an awful lot to offer other people. Some of us think we've got nothing to offer. Yes, you have. You're part of the body of Christ. And that is what gives you worth. Each of us has a ton of stuff that God has put in you for his glory and for the good of yourself and others around. So we want to be a people, as we end this series, who don't just say, oh, that was a nice series. Yes. The outworking is getting a community. That might be part of it. The outworking is we learn to walk side by side with one another in step with the Holy Spirit, learning to hear his voice, learning where I, I need to pick this up and work a bit harder, or I need to lay this down and, and stop trying to be God. Or I need to keep there, or I need to not there. You only know that by hearing the voice of God.